God's word because it's safe. So if I say the word Lent, what comes to mind? Some of you, maybe nothing. That's okay. Uh, for some of you, maybe with a Roman Catholic background, the idea comes to mind of uh, Ash Wednesday when you get ashes smeared on your forehead or uh, having to say goodbye to meat, at least during the week, at least six days of the week. Uh, I, I happen to think of um, like the, the movie uh, Monty Python and the Search of the Holy Grail when uh, there's this line of monks walking along smacking themselves in the face with boards, you know, like, right? Uh, that, that's kind of the imagery you get in mind when you start thinking about uh, uh, celebrating or thinking about, uh, thinking about this season that Christians actually for thousands of years have practiced together. Now, during the Protestant Reformation, the idea of Lent and some of these things um, were rejected because they were abused. They became just religiosity and legalism and a way to try to make God like you more or uh, check your religious boxes or do those kind of things. And so they shucked them all out of the, out of the way. However, I believe that um, these, some of these ancient practices have value if we approach them in the right way. And so what we've, tried, what we've decided to do right now is, um, as a church, just, just think about Lent together and just work to prepare our hearts together as we move towards Easter uh, and really what that means in celebrating it. And so what, is, what does Lent mean? It's, nothing, it's not something in the bottom of your pocket, in case you were wondering. Okay? Lent means, uh, it means 40th or 40. And it's really just the 40 days, not including Sundays, by the way, if you're Catholic. Okay? So if, if you are fasting in Lent or whatever, you get day off, right? Today. Okay? Uh, and so if, if you were fasting from sleeping in, I give you the holy reprieve, right? Today. Today, I'm just kidding. Okay, but no, seriously. So Lent is like the, it's really the 40 days leading up to uh, Easter, and it, the purpose of Lent has has been traditionally the preparation of the believer for Easter through prayer, repentance of sins, giving, and self-denial. Okay, um, so we don't normally here at Vintage we haven't normally celebrated Lent, but we thought. Hey, this would be a good thing for us, and and, it's, and I think it would be really good for us. And Hal and I were talking about this to get into Word together, and that's why we're doing this journey, journeying with Jesus uh, thing on the app or whatever, which makes it easy. And by the way, if you can, you can have it set alerts. It was alerting me this morning that I've yet to do my this, the readings or whatever. Okay, and so, but it's so super easy or whatever. So, and and, and during this time though, it's also traditionally been a time of fasting. Of denying yourself something and so on, okay. But so Lent, in its best form, though, asks the question throughout, and it should: What do you really care about? What do you really love? What is your life really about? What really matters to me? What matters to you? Matters to me? And that's a really disruptive question, isn't it? It can really, that's a question we don't really like to ask all the time. And because, you know, if you really want to know, which we really care about, it starts to get uncomfortable. 
And we start to really need to uh, really questions, okay? It's a probing, disruptive question. Lent asks, do you really care about God? Do you really worship God? Is God really worth it? And so here in Matthew 26, we, we, get, a, we get two stories that are put together. Matter of fact, they're put together in Mark's gospel as well. And, and it's, uh, John tells this account as well. And but these puts together uh, this, this anointing by Mary. And then all of a sudden you see Judas turning away and betraying Jesus. And, and these two stories ask us to consider what do you really care about? What is important to you? What is, what's, put it this way, what's worth it? So let's look at these together and ask some questions about them. Okay, so let's first look at this anointing. They call this the anointing at Bethany. This is where it happens. And, and it's a good, good question is, is it wasteful extravagance or priceless devotion? Read with me in verses um, uh, six, and, 6 and 7. It says this. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, that's a strange thing, especially if that was to happen today. Can you imagine? You're at a dinner party, and some, one of your friends is sitting there, and somebody comes in, busts a bottle of perfume, and starts dumping it on his head. As a matter of fact, John, in his gospel, in uh, chapter 12, tells us not only did she dump it on his head, that she began to anoint his feet and, wash his, and wipe his feet with her hair. Now, today's standards, that would have been, like, super weird, right? Like, what's going on here? Like, you know, like who is it? You know, whatever. Now, in, in ancient times, particularly in ancient Israel, um, anointing was common. It was common practice to anoint kings and so on. But it was also sometimes a common practice if you had an honored guest that you, or uh, somebody that you were working to honor or whatever. This might be something that you would do. And it was also sometimes a practice of hospitality. Somebody you really cared about, you would do this. So in that way, it wasn't necessarily strange. However, it was strange. And it elicited quite a response in the room. Okay, and so uh, what she's doing here stands out as really radical. Okay, and what one author put it this way, I think I have this for the screen. Kelly Worrell said this, it is a bold, extravagant, striking, sensory-filled expression of love. She, she gives with abandon and abundance, with humility and grace. The free, sweet fragrance undoubtedly fills the entire room. Everyone present is affected. They can't help but be. It's quite an act. I mean, if I was to take, it's kind of like when my kids discovered that Axe body spray. You know, you know what I'm talking about? We made the mistake of getting them like a little gift pack that had some body wash and it had this spray in there. And it, they failed to use it anymore. But when they first got it, it was apparent to everybody in the universe, that they were using Axe body spray. You know, it was going everywhere. Now we just want it on their feet. 
having a foot problem right now. Okay, but so she, I mean, so she burst this thing, and, and so everybody in the room knows, and everybody knows what it is because that smell everybody has likely smelled or as as at some point in their life at that time because it was popular, but it was really rare. And it was one of those smells that as soon as you smelled it, you knew exactly what it was kind of deal. You know what I mean? Because we're told that this, she's not just anointing him with like a cheap bottle of Old Spice. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know any of the cheap female uh, perfumes. Man, it doesn't go cheap, you know. So yeah, but what she's going, it says here in this text, it says that it is of extreme value. And let, so let's talk about that. What does that mean? Extreme value. Okay, first of all, not here, but in John's gospel, telling about the same account, he adds a detail that it's what she, this vial of, of, it's about a pound's worth, matter of fact. It's an alabaster jar. It is, it is what he describes as pure nard. And what that is, is spike nard. And spike nard in the ancient world was actually produced in one place, in India of all places. And it can only be produced there. And it was uh, these roots of these plants, these nard plants or spike or whatever they were. And they would take these roots, they would crush them, they would dry them out. And there was a, a long curing aging process. Kind of like the thing that makes a wine and whiskey more expensive is that long aging process. Well, that went through. And then it had to travel from India all the way to Jerusalem to, the, to come into their possession. And this is without Amazon Prime. There's no FedEx. There's no UPS, okay? It literally was on the back of some animal making its way from India to the Middle East. Okay, let's picture that. And so, as you can imagine, this substance was extremely expensive. And we're told that not only was it expensive, that this amount of it was worth at least close to a year's wages. Now, I don't know how much you make, but if it was close to a year's average wage at the time. And so she is pouring out. Can you imagine writing a check for your entire year's wage and just handing it over? That's what she's doing. But not only that, it was likely that it was a priceless family heirloom, and it might have even been a part of her dowry. So it was, when, he, when Matthew says extreme value, it's almost an understatement. And so everybody in the room stops. They smell the smell. They see what she's doing. And so what would have happened was, this, these bottles were sealed. And the only way to open them was to break them open. And she breaks it open and begins to anoint him right in front of everybody. And everybody would immediately smell it. Everybody noticed. Everybody saw what she was doing. And so the question, why would she turn to do this? Why would she do something like this? And um, Jesus says, in response to the disciples, we'll get into their response in a minute, he says that she has done this to prepare me for my burial. Now, this is my opinion on this. Now, go back and forth on this or whatever. I, I don't think Mary really thought that she was doing that. I think Jesus is saying what she's done in God's providence 
that this moment is preparing me for what is to come. And he uses this as a prophecy to say, I'm about to die, and look what she's done here. Okay? So uh, I think she kind of does it unwittingly, and so it's preparing him for his burial. But so here's the reality. Mary loves Jesus. It's all accounts throughout. Mary loves Jesus. She sticks with him to the end. She's there. She's, she, she loves his presence. We're told that at one point her sister's doing the dishes and getting stuff ready, doing whatever, and she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and her sister gets ticked, right, because she's not helping. She loves to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him and be with him and so on. And, and, and it, it kind of reminds me, if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, do you remember the four siblings? And the youngest is Susan. And, and I've always wanted to be and to have her affection because Susan was the one who, who loved Aslan the most. Susan was the one who recognized Aslan when nobody else would recognize him. She was the one who was always looking to him, always wanted to trust him and so on. And, and I think... This may be C.S. Lewis might have been hinting that Susan was a Mary. And so, so, so here she is. But more than that, we're told um, in John chapter 12 that there's a guest at this table. There's somebody sitting there special. None other than Brother Lazarus, who just before this, days before this, was dead and had been raised to life. And so what we see here with Mary isn't duty. She didn't come in the room and say, this is Jesus. You know, and I, I better do something special because he's Jesus. And that's what I'm supposed to do. It's my duty. No. What we see is an expression, a wild, lavish expression of love poured out. On our Savior. And, and, and our actions serve as a contrast to the wickedness and the chaos and madness going on around. Because right before this, we, we, we hear that the, the religious leaders of the day have begun to plot of how they could kill Jesus in secret. And then right after this, Judas goes off to betray him. And so, her beautiful anointing provides a blessed reprieve. In the midst of mounting madness. It's almost, and, and, and as we move towards Easter, it continues to ask the question, what do you care about? Where do you stand in these situations? Where, where, what is the verdict in your heart on these things? So, was, was, she wasteful, was it wasteful extravagance or priceless, priceless devotion? And so then, right after this, we see the response of everybody else. And we need to ask the question, was, was Judas's response just pragmatic thoughtfulness or brutal betrayal? So right after this, we see the disciples respond. So if you see in uh, verses 8 and 9, it says this. And when the disciples saw that they were indignant, saying, they're, they're ticked off here. That's a strong word, indignant. They were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum, 
and given to the poor. That sounds really good, doesn't it? We, that could have helped a lot of poor people. That could have been, we could have used that for good things. That could have had good purposes. It could have been what we said, you know, just a pragmatic thoughtfulness, some, some realism here. Come on, let's, let's put our money and make it, make it useful, make it good. Don't waste it like Mary did. And Jesus challenges them. He says, you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Now, what Jesus is saying here, not saying here, because this has been used this way, believe it or not, he is not saying that poverty is inevitable and we should just give up trying. You hear that? Make it clear. Because, you know why? Because what he's doing here is that he is actually quoting from Deuteronomy 15, 11, in which uh, God is commanding landowners to make sure they care for the poor. Jesus cared for the poor. He wanted us to care for the poor. Okay, But what he is saying here, Jesus is saying, is that devotion and adoration to him should outshine everything else in our lives. Even doing good. Even doing the religious duty. That love and adoration to him should outshine everything. Then we're told that Judas leaves this party. And he's going out, as we know, to betray Jesus. And here's the thing about this. We know it's so easy to read these narratives and think, that Judas, man, he's, he's the bad guy. Man, that guy is a thug. He deserved every bit of what he got. Right? You think, have you thought about that, about Jesus? That Judas, bad guy. He's like the, the enemy of Jesus in the Bible. You know, but how, if you look at it, though, if you really just kind of step back and look at what Judas did, you know, I mean, like, he wasn't like, Evil, wicked, like we normally think. I mean, he's not killed anybody. He's not like murdered his family. He hasn't like, you know, done any. I mean, there's some wicked people in the world that we could like put in line with Judas and think which one's worse here. Judas, you know, child murderer, genocide leader. <laughs> Come on, let's put him up. You know, like look at look at what Judas does here. But he just goes out and potentially, if you think about it, okay, um, he was probably just trying to take care of himself here. So he's starting to clue in. He's heard what Jesus has said. Jesus has told him, he's already begun to tell the disciples that he is going to die, that, that this ain't going to end well, and so on. I mean, Jesus, and he, Jesus even says it here. This was probably the final straw, the last straw here. And, and he's thinking, okay, I've tied my wagon to this train, this Jesus train, and, and we're, we were going along, and I was in, in, in high hopes that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. He was going to be the prophesied king that was going to kick Romans, the Romans' butt, kick them out of here, and then I was going to get a position of power and wealth, and my life was, I was going to be made. 
I'm good. I've got it made now. And now he's starting to get the picture up. That may not be happening. He's starting to sweat and think, oh, no. What does this mean? What's going to happen here? And he's starting to think about money. Not thinking about what, what's going to happen to him. What, where's he going to live? What, what about his family? What about this? What about that? And he's just thinking about caring for himself. And, and, or maybe there's maybe a little bit more of a noble idea here. Some have said that potentially Judas betrayed Jesus not just because he was a greedy jerk, but that maybe he was trying to motivate things and move things along. Like Jesus, he's wanting to, he is wanting Jesus to get in there and kick butt. So let's get some things stirred up here and make this happen. Potentially. But not the evil demon that we might normally think of. Here's the thing, but Judas, in placing value on money, security, and peace, or maybe a political thing over Jesus, he in fact positions himself against God in league with Satan. Innocuous things that each and every one of us do all the time. Put Judas right in opposition to Jesus himself. And so, honestly, when we read Judas, we should think to ourselves, that's scary. That is terrifying. Jesus, Judas, we know by his response after Jesus was arrested, and began to beat him and move him towards crucifixion. He regretted it. He said, I, he, he was like, I, I don't want this to happen. He tries to give the money back. He even commits suicide in his regret. So we, when we look at Judas, we need to ask ourselves, am I doing what Judas was doing? Am I doing the, the little things? That Judas Iscariot was guilty of? And so we got to ask a personal question here. Next point here. We wasting for God? Do we waste for God or we want for God? These stories should cause us to seriously consider what is most important to us. And, and Jesus' response to disciples, to what she did, is, is very uh, important and very telling to us. So if you look in verses 10 through 13, he says, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For what, you, what she has done is a beautiful thing to me. What she has done a beautiful thing. Jesus remarkably responds and called her act beautiful. Her waste, extravagant, lavish waste was a beautiful thing. And, and what Mary probably realized was that in our lives, in perspective, are short. Okay, in other words, how we spend our lives, our talents and money is super important 
And it should give us pause to ask, what am I doing with my life? What would Jesus say about my life? That is a beautiful thing. Don't you want that? So, for example, uh, our youngest son, Watts. When we give them allowance money, they get Christmas money, whatever, we'll take them to the store, and Watts will stand in the toy aisle, and it, it, it will go on and on and on. And he, he will stand there with his limited amount of money, and I think this is what happens, because besides me going nuts, it was impatience. He's thinking, I, I want to make the right decision. I want to spend this money well. I don't want to just, I don't want to regret spending this limited amount of money and later think to myself, dang it, I should have got the other thing, which he always does anyway. It's a whole other story. <laughs> but Knox, on the other hand, he knows what he values. He knows what he wants. He goes in the store. Two seconds later, he has what he wants. He's got it planned out. He's got it plotted. He knows what's valuable to him. He's done. He's satisfied. And we stand and wait for Watts. And, you know, and when you think about this story as well, both these stories, reminds me of the, the movie uh, Schindler's List. It's a movie about the Holocaust and about um, uh, whatever his first name was, Schindler, who... Um, and, you know, basically was cheap scamster who was going to capitalize on the war and began to utilize Jewish concentration uh, prisoners or labor, cheap labor, uh, but then began to use that as a means to save them from death. And at the end of the movie, it's this powerful moment when Schindler realizes, looking at the thousands of people he saved, that he could have saved a few more. It's like this pen on this lapel could have saved a person. This car could have saved 10. These things that I don't need could have done more. And there's this moment in which we need to ask ourselves, what am I doing with my life? In which potentially Jesus would say, that is a beautiful thing. And sometimes in our pragmatic thoughtfulness, in our usefulness in our lives, trying to make our thing, make things happen the way they should happen or to do our thing or whatever, we end up wasting instead of showing devotion and, and, and wasting our lives for what really matters. Jesus refers to this earlier on in Matthew. He has two parables. Chapter 13, I don't have these for the screen, it's fine. He says, there's the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his, in his joy, goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You hear that? It's a value transaction here. Mary made a value transaction. She said, this, you, this being in front of me is the God of the universe. There's no one more valuable, more precious. There's, there's nothing I could do better with this year's worth of wages than to give it to him, to pour it out for him. Because he said, just like this man who, in his joy, 
goes and sells all he has. And Jesus goes on and says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had to buy it. We do that. So, what are you wasting? Are you wasting what will, in, in the end, ultimately be a waste? Or are you wasting what will be a beautiful thing? You know, Valentine's Day comes around every year, and other times as well, of course. I will go out, and I will buy beautiful flowers that have been cut. And I will take them to my wife, and I will give them my wife, and somebody might say, you know, that's a waste. Because those flowers are cut, you know, two days later they're going to wither and die. See, that doesn't matter, does it? Because I love her. I value her. And, and I'm willing to, to, to give anything to her and to waste things on her. Why? I want to go spend good money on nice things for her. Why? Because I love her and I value her. And she is worth it. However, if I don't do that and I go and I spend my money, you know, uh, on sports or uh, whatever else, playing golf and those kind of things. And then I say, oh, I love my wife. My words betray. My, my actions, excuse me, betray my words. Several illustrations of this in the Bible. I won't get into them in depth. But when David, I mentioned this in a devotion several weeks ago, when David was thirsty and he tells his men, man, it would be great if I had some water in the well of Bethlehem. And his men hearing that go, and it was, it was occupied by the Philistines, the Philistines at the time. He, they go, risk their lives, break in to get a cup of water from the well of Beth, Bethlehem. They bring it to him, and he is amazed at their devotion and their sacrifice and their willingness to do that. And he says, I am not worth this. Only God is worth that type of sacrifice, that type of devotion and love. You know what he does with it? He offers it to God and to the ground. And in the devotion, I said, what do you think of that? Well, if you were one of those guys, you'd be like, what, what are you doing? Why you, we just risk our lives. Because he was like, God is the only one worth that kind of But Matthew, in this also, reminds us something else. He reminds us that whatever the power of those who plotted against Jesus, Jesus moved according to the Father's plans and not theirs. And this story kind of highlights it. He's like, she's preparing in the midst of this chaos. <coughs> it looks like the plot is on and, and Jesus is about to lose. And she is anointing him for burial. But the reality is, is that no matter how strong the forces arrayed against God's servants, God will ultimately fulfill his purposes in contrast with Judas and everybody else. Jesus obeys God's calling at a great cost to himself and provides a model of those who will follow him. In other words, it was Jesus the, in, in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but poured himself out, emptied himself, and humbled himself to becoming an obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the, here's the point. He 
is worth everything. He is worth wasting and pouring out everything you have. Why? Because he poured out. He gave everything he had. And he emptied himself in love for us. We should empty ourselves in love for him. Do you see his worth? Is Jesus worth everything to you? If you're an unbeliever, I challenge you. Come to him. He is worth it. He has given everything for you. He came, even though he could have been in heaven in glory with God and bliss forever and ever, chose to become a man to live a life that you could never live, perfect life, selfless life, and he died a perfect death you deserve so that we could be in perfect, eternal relationship with him. And I want to challenge you to give him everything because he gave you everything. Let's pray.